Thank you, Luke, for joining us. Um, I imagine you're joining us from, from Austin. Yes, we are. Uh, glad to see everybody here. Hi, David, Jimmy, Max. Hey, as a random question, I did want to ask when everyone got in the room, but and, and Peter's still getting here. So, but uh, is this like, uh, how often do you all chat? Like, is this like, is there, are there PayPal reunions that we don't know about that happen? And, or is this actually a semi-historic thing where, uh, you know, we've gotten together some of the early PayPal OGs? Well, I think, I think um, quite a few of us chat, you know, pretty decently often um, in terms of having all these people in one room digitally or physically, that's much more rare. Um, there is a PayPal reunion party happening um, later this year. So, I mean, we do occasionally do these things from time to time, but no, I mean, as far as getting everyone together in like a social audio type room, this is the first time I'm aware of for sure. Wow, well, this this is a, a little bit of history. It's like the the Beatles reunion tour or something. Assuming there was one, um, and this is definitely getting see. everyone's first reactions of of Jimmy's book. Oh, oh, well, that, yeah. Well, I, I, I admit to more. Definitely. I admit to more than a little anxiety and anticipation of this. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, I think we've got we've got uh, Peter appeared. Peter, the uh, the the unmute button, just FYI, is on the lower right right next to the thumbs up button and that toggles your mic. Can you hear us right now? Yes. Okay, wonderful. Peter's right here. Hey. Hey, Peter. Hey. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for making time. Um, I know we have to go back and forth to, to make all this scheduling happen, um, but I'm glad we, we managed to make it happen. Um, I'll, I'll just repeat what I said earlier. Um, I'm actually speaking to you from, from Eastern Poland. I'm on the Polish-Ukrainian border um, reporting on the whole war and the, and the situation, but there's no way I could miss such a, a meeting of the original PayPal OG. So thank you, Peter, for joining us. Um, okay. Um, you know, I, a, a lot of these, you, you know, as David knows, because he also hosts his own show, these shows are often best with their, you know, have a little bit of structure, but are somewhat conversational. This is probably the biggest room that I've ever led. Um, but, you know, I figure I'll, I'll toss in a few conversation points and we can just take it um, wherever, wherever it goes. Um, so, you know, the, the, the reason why we're meeting is Jimmy Sani, who's in the room, wrote this, what I thought was an amazing book called The Founders, um, which is about, you know, the early, and I'll let him go on. I'll shut up in a second, Jimmy, and you can, you can talk about your own book. But um, I, what I found amazing about um, your book is how refreshing it was and that unlike a lot of tech journalism coverage, which is, in my opinion, biased and negative and just shitty to use the, the term of art, um, I think yours, w without necessarily gilding the lily right or or hiding some of the the uglier realities just told the story of like how how exciting it was in the early days right and it reminded me of both the original excitement that i had when i joined the startup world and then in, in my much smaller more modest startup adventures the experience that i also had inside that world um and so uh thanks jimmy for for writing the book that uh, is making this room happen yeah i i appreciate it i you know I came in as a, as a bit of a neophyte. I don't cover tech on a daily basis, but I think that was a bit of an advantage. Um, I, I think the audience is going to be grateful if I say very little, because I suspect that the people tuning in are here to to listen to David and to Max and to Luke and to Peter. You know, the, the, I can add where appropriate, but the thing that I'm just grateful, I'm grateful for their time. They gave me a, a lot of time these last few years, made key introductions uh, and kind of allowed me to, worm into this story and to try to tell it, tell it accurately. And the world seems to be responding really positively to it. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, but I think the less I say in this conversation. <laughs> I think the same, by the way, Jimmy. So I'm just, I'm just going to like throw an initial small bomb into the conversation to get the, the ball going. And then I'd, I'd ideally like to shut up and just listen to everybody else's view. I, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off by, by one, by one summary of the book that I think, I mean, PayPal as a whole, just as like, as like an abstraction, so to speak, almost a, a Jungian archetype of what startups are has kind of set the, you know, sometimes created the mold. So for example, there's a lot of startup tropes that we now take to be like standard Silicon Valley motifs, like, oh, the founders built the act, like, as I understand it, Max actually built a lot of the furniture in the original Palo Alto office, for example, or they would hire interns and then give them like real work to do, not just some bullshit intern job, and then go further and actually convince them to leave their college and actually get a real job. And just a lot of the tropes that have become like standard issues for Silicon Valley stuff, 
were the stuff of the PayPal story and, and a collective question to anybody and everybody j- jump in or whatever as you want. Like, did you realize that in some sense you were like, I, I hate the term blazing a trail. It sounds like LinkedIn speak, but did, did you realize that in some sense you were setting a pattern that would hold for like 15, 20 years of, of Silicon Valley life as it was happening? Or were you just so busy trying to make it up as you go along that that thought didn't even, didn't even occur? I'll ask David because he's the most loquacious maybe of the, of the group. <laughs> um, I think the short answer is no, but what I would say is that we spent a tremendous amount of time back then. And I'm talking about like late 1999, 2000, 2001, arguing about the best way to do things. Um, uh, you would never have a lot of the conversations today that we had back then because so many things have been figured out. There's best practices, um, on how to do product management, how to do, you know, agile development on, you know, having startup culture. I mean, to be sure, people debate these things today, but, you know, much less than 20 years ago, 23 years ago. And so there was so much figuring out back then. And there was a lot of uh, deliberation, argument and thought put into, um, you know, what should the culture of the company be? How should we do things? Um, but did we know that we were creating a template that would be so successful that everyone else would want to follow it? No. You, you know, w- w- one thing um, I, I would say, you know, it, what, in rereading uh, 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 Sony's book, which is a terrific book, um, you know, it reminded me of all, it, one of the things he captures really well in it is, uh, is how, um, how chaotic it was, how, um, you know how little we knew what we were doing, and then, but how we did it, figure a lot of stuff out as as we went along, and uh, and it's always very hard to recreate that sense because you know twenty years later, everything um, everything retrospectively uh, makes a lot of, a lot of sense in different ways. But I, I would say one thing that I think we understood better than many companies in ninety nine two thousand two thousand one was that the whole context was incredibly crazy and you know it wasn't quite obviously what you were supposed to do in a crazy context but uh but one dynamic was that uh it was virtually impossible for a new company to hire you know moderately competent people with lots of experience and if you wanted experienced uh people you got generally very bad people um and uh, and so we had to figure out some workaround, and the workaround involved hiring talented people. Um, you know, sort of a lot, by the time of the IPO, you know, in, in two thousand two, I think the median age at the IPO was something like twenty nine of the executive team, and it was just you had to you had to figure out some way um, to make it work with talented people because there were just no. Um, no good experienced people available for a startup at the, at the top of the bubble. And that was, yeah, that was something we had to do. And then that somehow was something that became much more of a template for the future where uh, the idea of founders, you know, running a company for a long time was, was uh, a scandal in the 1990s where, you know, the theory was you would, you'd bring in uh, some other uh, adults to, to manage, manage a company. And then that, uh, that definitely became a template for the future. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that seemed consistent. Oh, sorry, Luke. Yeah, one thing we did not even, I just want to point out how much we were not even necessarily thinking of setting the template. We did not even know about some of the obvious templates that already existed. For instance, we did not know that a company should have a head of product. This is not something that was, was obvious to us. I had heard there were product people at Netscape. I had worked there briefly. Um, for, when David came in, his first role um, was not specifically the VP of product, but we had a general idea that has something, there was something wrong with how the website had been, been constructed and it needed to be badly fixed. If we had had the idea that we needed a head of product earlier, then as Peter pointed out, perhaps you would have hired someone quite experienced who would have been much, much worse um, than, uh, than, than David, who had no experience in running a, a product at, at an internet company. And so the, the ignorance actually allowed us to not just um, blaze trails in new things, but ignore some the ignorance of, of even things that were obvious, uh, prevented us from um, making some uh, from, from serious mistakes, having this com- complete beginner's mind to, to the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's funny as someone who's held, held the, the job role of product manager in the past, I, I could tell David was a product manager because from from Jimmy's book, his first 
task he set himself when when he joined was actually canceling the main product of the company, which was the device to device payment um, via infrared. Was was that right, David? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to put a bullet in that right away. Um, <laughs> and and there was some debate about it, but finally it happened. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I didn't start as VP of product. I actually started as VP of strategy. I had come from McKinsey, and back then I thought the only the most important thing was having the right strategy. And what I realized my first month on the job at PayPal was that the the most strategic thing was to get the product right. And so I started focusing on that, and I didn't have any experience, but... Um, you know that that's that's how the whole VP of product thing happened, and it kind of went from there. It uh, it, it changed. Uh, it was basically at two in the morning. The product got changed, and when uh, people came into the office in the morning, there was uh, a new product. Generally, <laughs> how did the engin- how did the engineers feel about that, David? Um, <laughs> well, I'll let Max speak to it, but there was a lot of resistance actually in the first few months of making this change because. The you know the the engineers have spent a lot of time working on the the palm beaming product and um, you know it, it it was a little bit of sunk cost but it was emotional for people because we were pivoting hard away from that towards the website product but I'll let Max speak to to the sentiment among the engineers. Yeah, I think we all had our emotional attachments. Uh, I, for one, enjoyed the uh, quaint experience of two infrared-capable uh, devices making sweet, passionate love to each other over an encrypted link. But uh, I think I think by the time I'd allowed it to actually occur, it was really clear that the web product was growing really quickly and the infrared one was... You know, it, basically, the roles flipped. We started with the web product being the demo and the infrared product being the main line. And by the time we were turning off the infrared product, it was very clear that was the quaint demo and uh, the website was the one getting used. So it was it was unemotional at that time, but it was certainly pretty uh, hard fought um, in some quarters anyway. Before. I, I, well, Max, next... I, remember, I remember you sort of um, whispering something to me in the hallway around this time when we decided to to kind of pivot over products. And you basically said that, you know, you realized that it, it, even if the goal had been the, the palm beaming thing, like the mobile payments, that it would have been a lot simpler just to have the transactions clear when the Palm Pilot got synced to the cradle, as opposed to needing to figure out the whole encrypted, you know, beaming thing. And you, you kind of like, as an aside to me in the hallway said, gee, we could have saved six months if we'd just done it that way. And it was kind of like, well, don't tell anybody because, you know, uh, that would be like pretty crushing for for the engineers. But it was it was sort of a funny aside. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah, I actually remember the conversation. Um, I think, yeah, I think in, in the moment it always feels that work done as recently as yesterday is the single most important thing you've ever done. And then 10 days later, you realize that whatever you just put in the ground doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is the thing you do tomorrow. But just to, just defend Max and the engineers a little bit, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think the company pivoted fast and hard, you know, multiple times over, over that crazy, you know, 12 month period from when we launched in, you know, October, um, October um, 1999 through, let's say, the end of the year 2000, a 12, 14-month period. There were uh, so many crazy pivots, iterations that uh, – um, and uh, and so, yeah, well, there was a little bit of a sunk cost bias. You know, the, the anti-David argument was that we shouldn't do too much thrashing and um, – and, uh, but I, I think, um, you know, I, th- I think we did just about the right amount. But it was, it was, a, it was much more than almost any other company – in, in Silicon Valley at that time. And, and just to describe, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Okay. I think that's right. It certainly wasn't, you know, saying this critically. Yeah. I mean, the team was very, very good about iterating. In fact, this whole idea of iteration was something that we got very, I mean, this was one of the things that we felt like we had discovered is that, you know, other tech companies would do these very long product development cycles. Um, I guess probably, a legacy of pre-web development where you'd ship, you know, you'd ship a disc or something once a year. 
And we thought we had really figured something out by just iterating extremely rapidly and uh, not spending too much time planning things in advance. Again, commonplace today, we would call this agile development or something like that today, but 23 years ago, we really felt like we had figured out something that no one else was doing. Could, could I add a, a, a small note as somebody who obviously had the wide angle lens view of the, the beaming product, and maybe again, to sound a note of, of defense, you know, in my conversations with you, Peter, but then also just looking at the press, it was a way to put the company on the map. And it's the press from the beaming at bucks that leads to inbound resumes. It doesn't lead to users necessarily. But if I recall, and if I have my facts right, it was like Chad Hurley heard about the beaming at bucks and sent an application in to work. And I, I think that as you had put it to me, it, it was hard to get these like untried companies on the map, especially because you're competing against, you know, maybe a dozen other payment services firms at the time. And so when I, you know, when I told that story, there's a reason that I went and like sat down at Bucks and like interviewed James, the head of Bucks, and tried to understand like why the the press attention on that product mattered, even though the company within two months was a very different company. Yeah, well, pr press can always be uh, exaggerated or understated. It was um, it was it was very important, I think, for um, getting investors and um, and more importantly for for hiring talented. Uh, uh, talented people, um, uh, because, you know, uh, people just didn't know where, where to even apply or where to work. And, and so it was, it was a super important channel for that. It was, um, it, it certainly was, was not important for, uh, for the actual growth of the product, which was more just, uh, marketing, uh, the various viral marketing techniques that we, we ended up hacking. But, uh, but yes, it was, uh, it was, um, it was a great, uh, crazy dynamic and certainly, um, certainly, uh, it was sort of one, once we had, once we got the money from the, from the series A investors and were able to beam it at bucks, uh, we all of a sudden, um, had lots of other people come out of the woodwork that wanted to give us more money. And, uh, so it was, it was very effective at that. So j just a comment for those who may not be familiar with or haven't read the book, the beaming of bucks has this sort of legendary status in Silicon Valley. I've, I've heard the story in various forms. I think Jimmy tells what's probably going to become the canonical form of it. But just the short version of it, just to summarize for those who don't know, the idea was, and by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, the idea was to actually beam the first investor check using the beaming technology at the time. And for those who aren't familiar, this is pre-iPhone, there was only Palm Pilots and various other gadgets. And the idea was that you could actually, there used to be like an infrared sensor and transmitter on, on the front of the device, and you could send money to another device. And at the time, I know it sounds lame now, that was very, very cool. And you decided to actually do it in production. And from Jimmy's story, I think nobody, somebody hadn't built the code in like weeks ahead of time. And so you had thousands of compiler bugs to actually fix days beforehand. And so everyone got to the finish line basically exhausted. And I, I hope you don't mind my, my mentioning the anecdote from the book, Max. But I believe at, at the end, you were so exhausted, you literally passed out on the table and like came to on the table at Bucks with a cold omelet next to you, realizing that that you had you had gotten to the finish line. That that is, in fact, the canonical version. I don't remember what was in the omelet. I, I recall you musing in the book that you didn't know whether to be more offended that they actually went out of the way to buy you an omelet, or the fact that they had just left you at the restaurant and gone back to the office. Yeah, that's true. I, the the funny thing is that I've been to Bucks many many times. I still can't figure out which table I was at when this whole thing transpired. So I, I was in some sort of a significant degree of stupor. Uh, I've, I've been there a few times since. I, I want to say they've, they've slightly rearranged the tables or so, something like that from, from, the time, from the time we were there. Yeah, I remember crawling into a corner and just kind of like looking at this plate and plate was looking back at me and then my face was in the omelet. You, Max, when you when you explained it to me, you said it was an omelet with cheese and onions because of the Ruddles song. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Cheese and onions. Cheese and cheese and onions. At this point, these memories will become enshrined thanks to your yep. extraction of uh, latent memories. The cheese and onions is not is no, not in the book. So. No, no, that, that's right. But I, it, it brings back the memories. I, you, I, you, know, I, you know, there are all these there are all these ways these things were connected in different ways. Obviously, it helped us recruit Chad Hurley, which was who was a phenomenal um, first web designer. Ended up going on to create YouTube after after PayPal years later. 
Um, it helped us raise more money from investors. It also locked us on a pretty harebrained uh, second beaming idea, which was um, to get, uh, and maybe David, you want to talk about this. This was one of your, your, uh, your, your more harebrained ideas with, uh, with uh, Scotty. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, back then we were still kind of latched onto this, um, yeah, this beaming language that was sort of the, the branding. So yeah, we hired, uh, James Dewan, who played Scotty in the original Star Trek to do a press event. And, um, yeah, it was, it, uh, it got us impressed, but, um, that we did a press event that kind of bombed. So, um, yeah, it, uh. I guess that was yeah, that, that maybe that being, it wasn't a surefire thing. We we thought it was like this clever branding where you know Scotty used to beam people, and now he beamed really important things like money, and <laughs> um, and it. Uh, but yeah, somehow uh, it was it wasn't like a magic formula. It, you know, it was something that worked, okay. worked specifically at Bucks, but then trying to do it again, a second time, it wasn't automatic. Yeah, yeah. Remember, you know, uh, after that, we we may have abandoned the whole beaming branding altogether and i think we just settled on emailing money and then that kind of stuck yeah the uh, the death of the scotty event was largely by way of traffic we didn't think of it but we scheduled in san francisco in the uh, st francis hotel and it's just so poorly situated vis-a-vis -vis traffic vast majority of the press and attendees just never showed up because they gave up on 101 north <laughs> and so i remember just hanging around and eating snacks because there was so much leftover food So what, one thing I think, again, I think PayPal set the pattern for so many things in Silicon Valley. The, the other thing that's interesting about the sort of dramatic arc of the story is that um, despite beaming and a lot of the initial thought where what you would now call product market fit was hit in a very unexpected way, in, in one way, and, and it almost hit on you by surprise, right, that PayPal was the, the product of choice to be used in this other virally growing product called eBay. And you suddenly realized that emailable money was where it was at. Um, and, and not only that, and the second, the second thing I would say that seemed like it was PayPal's forte was the, the business of anti-fraud. And actually, have, but we can get into that in a second. But can, can you describe maybe, I, I know these things are always described as a eureka moment and it never really works that way. But can you describe, you know, what was the process by which you finally figured out, oh, shit, this, this is really what the future is for PayPal? Well, it, it, it was as close to a eureka moment as you can get, actually, I think, with a startup. Um, I haven't really had as dramatic a one as that um, in, you know, the 20-something years since then I've been doing this. But Luke and I were in the office together. So, Luke, you want to describe what happened? Um, this is with, with noticing the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the logos on yes, eBay. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. They were doing this. Um, we, we just got a request from customer service. Uh, you know, for someone to get get help, like uh, resizing a logo or something, and and, and then we, we just started uh, searching on eBay to see okay, wait, why why is our logo on eBay? How did they cut this out of our website, or where did it come from? And it uh, you know turned out thousands of of, of eBay users, uh, unbeknownst to us, and you know we had an inkling that, that eBay might be a market, but it's not the one that we favored. And, and Jimmy, you covered this very well in your book. And uh, across all of us, you know, we weren't not at all thinking um, it was, it was going to be eBay. We thought it might be. Um, but uh, when we saw it uh, over and over again, there, I think uh, we were just so excited. There, there, was, there, was, there was a clear market of a certain type of user that badly, badly needed this thing. It was instantly obvious. And then, David, you just jumped on it, and then you productized that. You made it um, into you – you, you asked the team to just make it into a standardized logo and make it um, into something that, that we could uh, distribute to people. Uh, and it fit in really well with our $10 bonus program, uh, which, which I had uh, started up earlier because when we had that originally, everybody was just making money. It was college students who were just like, it was actually my, my co-founder at, at Gigafund, uh, Steve Oski was, a, was a, a college freshman. He was racking up thousands of dollars making fake PayPal accounts um, and, you know, just get, getting, uh, getting his, his doormates to sign up. And these were not going to be users who would eventually create a market, but the eBay users were market. And we saw that instantly. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, my memory of this, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty vivid. It was me and Luke and then Chad Hurley was, were in this, were in the office and an email had come from Dave Wallace, our customer support guy. And it had been an eBay power seller who had created this eBay button for her auctions. And she was asking us for permission and I think, ironically, Dave had sent the email or something 
asking as like a legal question because I was also doing the company's legal work at that time. And, um, and so then that started this conversation about what people were doing on eBay. And then, you know, I think Chad was sitting in front of us and ran the search query and we saw there were like thousands of auctions and that, you know, I remember Luke, you getting really excited about it. And then I think we basically ran into Peter's office and basically described what we had learned. Um, and although, yeah, although, so the, although the version I, the version I remember was there was, there was at least a momentary misgiving about it where it was the eBay was just the sketchy flea market with just the crappiest multi-level marketing programs imaginable. And, um, and was this actually, you know, on brand or off brand? Although, uh, you know, uh, it was obviously better than just giving away money for free. So well, also, Peter, it wasn't going to work for our business model at that time. Remember, the, the business model was at that time was there were so many iterations of it was people would send money to one of their friends, one of their dorm mates, you know, like, like you know, my friend was doing and they would leave it in the account uh, and then they would put more money in the account. And we would earn interest off of that. It'd be like a little mini bank account. We knew that eBay sellers were running little businesses. So they would withdraw the money instantly. There was no time to make money off the float. Um, so it was at that time when we, I think we're not, uh, charging fees unless someone had done a very large number of transactions. David, you remember better than I do. Had you canceled the fees yet? Yeah, I think we were free at that point. Um, in fact, we yeah, said so we were always free. No way to make money at all on these people. And I you, you know, you know, if, I, if I had to, it's always so hard to capture the history, but, uh, just to be a little bit more critical of some of the things I think, I think we didn't do as well as we could have, or I, I could have done better. It was certainly part of, part of my, my job was uh, really to figure out what was the business model for, um, for, uh, for the company. And we, you know, we did not have a great answer for the first year. The, the natural answer turned out, you know, if, if people are using your money for payments, you just get a, a fraction of each payment. And uh, there's a natural business model that's super tightly coupled to that. And, um, and uh, you know the degree to which we were um, the business models were vague, very far in the future. Uh, you know we're going to lose a lot of money before we ever made money. Um, uh, it, it, that was probably you know it was, it was it was a weakness in some way. It was a strength in the sense that we obviously were able to just get products out that people wanted to use. And um, and and if you don't if you don't need to worry about making money, you can get out products that people want more. Um, but, uh, but it was also, uh, it was also cer certainly, a um, um, it, if I, if I had to magically do it over again, uh, it, it would have somehow been, um, a much stronger business that we somehow thought more clearly about the business model a little bit earlier. I mean, I don't think you should beat yourself up too hard on that in the sense that I think even today, the, the playbook is get product market fit first, get to, you know, get a big audience certainly on a consumer product. And then, you know, once you get traction and prove product market fit, then figure out monetization later. That's basically what happened. I mean, I remember in the early days, though, I mean, it was, it was kind of comical how, you know, we would see these online banking sites spending, you know, $100, like E-Trade or whatever, um, spending $100 trying to acquire a, a customer. And we would do it for $20 to sign up for referral bonuses. And so... Every time we set up a customer, we thought we were making eighty dollars, even though we had no way of monetizing them yet. Um, do, you, do you remember this? This is this is sort of oh, yes. before the dot com. This is before the crash. Oh yes, NetBank, all these all these banks. Um, um, yeah, no, um, yeah, but I, th I think I think even though yeah, obviously the freemium thing is the direction a lot of things have gone off into in the years uh, um, post two thousand. Um, uh, PayPal was still at a at an extreme where um, you you simply were you know losing two percent on every payment because you were losing the credit card fees, uh, you know you were losing ten dollars for every new customer. We're directly paying cash, so I think uh, there were some you know there were a bunch of crazy negative margin things that have been tried the last three four years, um, but uh, yeah we were about the most extreme at the time. And, uh, and then I think it was not till about 2015 that people did anything uh, remotely as negative margin as PayPal. I mean, did you ever actually make money off the float? I know that was one of the early ideas. <laughs> did that ever actually happen? It was, uh, it was a, I mean, a t a t you, you made a tiny amount, 
Uh, but uh, but it, it, it was just basically the product, a good product functionality was that you wanted to um, you wanted to get the money out as fast as possible. And so anything that delayed the money getting out was was bad. There was this there was this um, this television ad where you had as was David Sachs kept using this line. But this tele- there was this television ad where you had this uh, um, um, this anti roach thing and you, you killed um, the roaches when they went in. And, and uh, he said, you don't want to be a roach motel for money where uh, people come in and they never leave. And if people think the money, they can never take the money out, um, they'll never put it in in the first place. So, uh, so yeah, um, some version of the float could work, but um, you, you just sort of have, you'd have to have gates to make it hard for the customers to leave. And then you wouldn't, you'd never even get customers. You know, it's, it's the other thing I, I touched upon in terms of, you know, things that you figured out on the fly that you wouldn't have expected. And it's funny, it, it, this was imparted to me as a lesson by Paul Graham when I was going through Y Combinator. And he, he cited as an example of, um, you know, companies taking on problems they didn't realize that then become sort of a superpower. And he mentioned how, you know, in the early days of PayPal, and again, obviously, as you know, your guys' history has become sort of lore. He's like, you know, a payment system isn't that hard. It's just like an upsert with like a database lock, right? But the hard part is the anti-fraud, figuring out where what is actually a fraudulent transaction. And so one of the superpowers that PayPal developed by necessity, and I, I think, Max, you were pretty cr- critical to this, down to scenes in which you'd be talking to some of the fraudsters in Russian to like try to psychologically profile them and figure out who they were, was the... And it, it, it sounds, at least from the book, that you had no idea you'd have to tackle this gargantuan problem. But it was the issue of, of anti-fraud and figuring out which trans, transactions were, were fraudulent. Uh, yeah, we, we certainly didn't enter the, uh, the business on the assumption that fraud will be a major piece of it. Um, fraud sort of fell out of the sky in the form of an anvil at us, basically right after the merger with X, where... They had built a bunch of products that had kind of an extremely lossy profile. And then we already had these negative margin products just kind of in normal circumstances. The thing about fraud that's worth understanding is in a world of uh, payments that you make free for both sides, you lose on average 2% on every transaction. In the case of fraud, you're potentially unhooked for 102%. You're never going to get the two, but you're also going to lose 100 because the money isn't real or someone's credit card has been stolen or someone's bank account has been taken over. And so... It's a, it's a fairly asymmetric, like if you're really, really good at it, you'll just lose 2%. And if you're bad at it, you lose the entire company. So we pretty much found out in a span of sort of from, from May 2000 through May or um, call it August 2000 that we had essentially a few months left to live, just given the sheer pace of money we were losing to fraud. And it's one of these things that we decided uh, we didn't want to die and had to, uh, had to invent some new ideas to, to, to fix that. You, you know, one, one, uh, all of that's very true. Although, you know, one, um, there are all these sort of random details one can add to the story. So I, I think it was summer of 1999. We had uh, um, this guy Scott Loftus, and this had been a vice president at Visa, came by our office, and this was pre the launch of the product. And he asked us, "What about all the fraud you're going to have?" And <laughs> and I remember we didn't have really good answers for him. And then, but it was. At that, at that point, you know, if we had taken him seriously, we would have never launched the product. Yeah, exactly. And this so, is a great story. Uh, I, I and should then, have told this to, to, to Jimmy. So I had exactly the same experience. And I think I told you, Peter, I ran into the woman who ran payments at Microsoft. And she said, hey, so this is a really cool thing you guys are about to launch. Do, do you have uh, a process figured out to handle chargebacks? And I sort of made face and, and kind of backed away. But then I came back and reported, I don't actually know what that means. This idea of a this credit card chargeback was just not a thing I knew. Like, I didn't even know what that meant. So we launched the product before I learned what that meant. Oh man, I think I think this is one of the areas where we had um, you know, tried to bring in the, some of these advisors, like like Scott. I remember I don't know how I found this guy. I think you found um, him, Luke. Yeah, you found you found I think, a lot I of think these it people. Was, maybe, oh, no, it's through uh, not Verifone, um, through Bill Melton pro- probably, um, who who started uh, Verifone, the big credit card processing machines. Yeah, um, and and they were uh, they they tried to explain stuff to us about the financial system and it was, it had, it had, a, had a good side and a bad side. The good side is that uh, it didn't dissuade us because I think had we hired these people, we might've never started the company. Like the, it was, it was such a difficult task um, and it was so different than what the financial system was, was, was built for. We probably would have failed, but then um, we also uh, just could not process that feedback. We didn't, we didn't know what to make. We said there's going to be fraud. We didn't know what to make it. We sort of forgot about it for several months. 
Um, yeah, no, I think I think I think I think one of our conclusions, which was a very lame argument, was that PayPal was such a friendly name that we'd have only good people using it, and we were not uh, we weren't like these hardened uh, people from the uh, payments industry who had to be on the lookout for fraud all the time, and we were going to be this uh, this friendly, bubbly 1999 internet company. Max, do you remember um, when you introduced the CAPTCHA test? I guess it wasn't called CAPTCHA back then. It was called the Gauss-Beckton test. But um, I'm pretty sure we were the first to use that, right? Uh, So apparently I've gotten through some hot water um, with with some people. So this guy named Louis Van Ahn was a graduate student at CMU. And the CAPTCHA acronym is actually due to his... um, research group. So they came up with this uh, completely automated uh, something test. I don't remember the rest of the acronym, but uh, we had completely independently invented this idea. And I think the story is actually fully covered in the book, but basically we're just getting incredible number of fully automated signups. The bad guys realized that one, they can collect $10 and two, they can just fully automate the laundering of stolen credit cards through PayPal. And we have to have some way of distinguishing humans from programmatic attempts to sign up for PayPal. And uh, it was actually a very, very long protracted process. Like literally every day I would come into the office with a new idea. I was like, all right, so what if I randomize the names of all the HTML fields for the form? And then like it, it, it would slow everyone down for a while. The bad guys would get slowed down for a while. And then the next two or three days, they would figure out that you just scan the page for something that roughly looks like the, the right name of the field and they would do that. And then I would come up with like, what if I repartition the page? What if I added some redirects? Like all these various sort of lame hacks uh, using kind of primitive web technologies. And then it would slow them down for two days and they would come back. And eventually I started getting anonymous emails from one of the uh, leaders of the other side taunting me, sometimes in Russian, how uh, you you try to fix your site. I, I break your site. I, if I make script, I take your money. It was kind of gotten very, very, very personal and emotional. And by then I was sort of negative sleeping hours. Uh, and then I finally kind of had this idea of like, well, what if we just figured out some test to put in front of humans that humans would do really quickly and uh, computers couldn't do. And so I, I walked out into the engineering floor and asked, Does anybody, can anybody think of a test that humans are really good at? And computers are very bad. And this engineer, David Gausbeck, looked up from his computer and said, um, optical character recognition. That, that's a classic problem where computers are still terrible and humans are really good at reading scraggly letters. And that was sort of the uh, kickoff point. And the next 20 minutes, I was in a car sprinting to Fry's Electronics to buy every OCR package in a disk form so that I could test my scrambled letters against it. And uh, in the next 48 hours, I was done building the first version. And uh, last I checked, PayPal's site 20 plus years in still uses my code, which is actually quite amazing. And that may be the, the only last vestige that uh, is left of my work. Max, do you have a sense of whether, is it, is it actually the capture of the um, election Gauss-Bick test? Is, is that actually what's protective at this point? Or is it just that the fraud gets caught on all these other, all these other levels? You know, I think it's still very, very effective in terms of blocking automated signups. It, it's not enough in a sense that one thing that's really changed in this, you know, in my, my day job at a firm, I sort of get to find that out pretty directly. So 20 odd years ago, people in Eastern Europe would write code that would sign up fraudulently for our products. And then they would try to launder money, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'd figure out a way to slow them down, basically force human interaction. That's real human interaction as opposed to programmatic one. And then of course, globalization happened. And now they just set up enormous customer service like centers in very low income economies like East Africa and the Philippines and places like that. And literally thousands of people will gladly solve CAPTCHAs for you while the rest of it is automated. And so CAPTCHA itself is actually not nearly as effective, which is also why you're seeing these kind of more and more convoluted CAPTCHAs, like which of these animals is upside down or not, so that it's that much harder for a human to solve it very quickly. And so there's still a race between the good guys and the bad guys, and good guys are engineers coming up with harder puzzles, and the bad guys are just hiring lots and lots of... uh, Mechanical Turk type uh, type forces, if you will. I, I, I have to admit, it was it was very jarring when Max came to me and said he needed to put this, you know, this CAPTCHA, <laughs> this Gauss-Beck Levchin test on the sign up page. We have spent all this energy 
trying to streamline the sign-up page and make it as absolutely simple as possible and get rid of any extraneous field. And you got to remember, no one had ever seen a caption before. This is, I think, the first time it ever been used in a commercial product. And it was like, what? You want users going through sign-up to do what? To prove they're not a robot? Um, it was very jarring. Um, there were a lot of, I think, fruitful um, debates or frictions that were created um, by, you know, Max was pushing to solve fraud. I was pushing to make the site as usable as possible. And Peter, you know, had this this metaphor that there were all these dials in the business that had to be tuned and all these trade-offs that had to be made. And part of the, the trick was just getting all the, the dials tuned right. Peter, do you, you remember saying stuff like that? Uh, yes, it was, um, well, there was sort of a, um, I guess there was a, there was a privacy dial. I thought of it as a three-part dial, and you can frame it different ways. There was a privacy dial, a security dial, and a um, sort of product dial. And so um, you could optimize on any two of the three, but if you optimized on all three, it was uh, terrible. So if you optimized on respecting people's privacy, where you don't know who they are, and it's massively secure, it was going to be an incredibly unusable, clunky product. And then you could, um, you could, um, you could obviously optimize on product and privacy. It could be completely private and very easy to use, but you, all the money would be stolen by the wheelbarrow through fraud. Um, and then, um, and then probably there were ways you could be pretty consumer friendly and pr pretty good on fraud, but have uh, no no privacy for the customers at all. Um, but uh, you could get, get two out of the three. But uh, in, in practice, you want if, if you want to do some combination of them you had a you had of all these offsets so i have got like three questions i want to ask i i know we've got like an hour book and everyone here is very busy um so i'll, I'll just try to run through them uh quickly so you know at the end you know max you mentioned like what that we built you know lived on it's by the way it's it's mind-blowing to me that some of the capture code is still being used um at the end of the day you, you went public but then you all, then you got acquired um, by eBay, and it was like this total organ rejection mismatch of, or at least that's what it sounded like in the book. And I'm curious if you can describe if that was actually true, and and kind of what what that was like. That you've you know you went through this massive marathon, you, you solved all sorts of problems you couldn't have imagined, and then boom, you, you know you get eaten by this larger company that drove a lot of your business. What, what was that like? Uh, I think each one of us had our own version of the thing of, of the experience. It felt very lonely for me. I was suddenly, like up until that point, PayPal sort of combative and crazy as it was and sort of constant chaos um, was very much home. Like it felt much more to be at home in the office than really anywhere else. Not, you know, not with my parents, not with my friends, which is kind of a like, true fabric of my life. And pretty quickly after the acquisition, even though I didn't change offices, I was still in the same building, same sort of everything. It suddenly felt that I was coming to work in this very foreign place because there are all these new rules that are being very rapidly um, introduced. Uh, two random kind of a, uh, factoids. Like suddenly, all these really, really intense security things that I added to both the product and the way we did programming and you know, the, the way we did work was, from my at least point of view, biased as I am, very, very well designed to protect our customers' data, protect our data, and. Uh, eBay sort of went to town, tearing down all these walls. And not only was I flabbergasted this was going on, but I knew that these were the minimum necessary viable things because David fought so hard to get rid of anything that was not entirely necessary. One of our heated debates with David was, do we even need passwords for this stupid site? What if we had passwordless login? That'd be great. And so as I sort of saw like these really, really carefully chiseled strategies demolished by eBay, I was sort of like, this is, this is no longer home. The, the thing I remember about the eBay transition is that when we were creating the sheets of paper to line up people from PayPal with their counterparts at eBay, there were always three people at eBay for every single role at PayPal. And so there were literally three people at eBay doing the job of one person at PayPal. And um, right then we knew something was probably pretty badly off. Um, but I've kind of called this the, 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 the tragedy of the situation is that if eBay had that startup PayPal culture, 
then we probably never would have had the opportunity we had, which was to steal this market out from under them. I mean, if they had been the perfect cultural fit for us, then, you know, probably they would have beaten us to this opportunity. So that was kind of the inherent tragedy of the situation. Yeah, I think I think those there, there's so many things one can say, say about it. It was uh, I, 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 I've come to think there was also just this very strange generational thing where I remember David had the line that it was, uh, you know, meet meet the parents uh, would be the movie if you if you, you had a movie to describe it. But uh, but I, I come to think it was like it was like people who are like half a generation older. And it was like meet the evil uh, younger um, stepmother or something like that. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, and somehow there was, there was a version of the story that happened over and over again in the nineties where, uh, the companies were started by Gen X people and they got uh, taken over by, by baby boomers. And, uh, uh, we had a few close calls of that in the, in the PayPal history. And then it, uh, it finally happened with, uh, it finally happened with eBay, but somehow this is what happened at Yahoo. This is what happened at, uh, eBay itself. It's what happened at Netscape. Um, and it was somehow the story that happened over and over again in the nineties was sort of, uh, I, I, I sort of think of it as this crazy generational war between the boomers and the, the Gen X people where the Gen X people always lost. Well, it's my, it's my opinion. And I'm not even fully Gen X. The Gen X was probably the last good generation, but that, that's a separate, that's a separate conversation. Um, we have a few minutes left, so I, I, I have one question that, that's always bothered me, or that I've, I've always had, and now that I have everyone here, I'd, I'd love to ask it. You know, again, PayPal, not to butter all your muffins so much, but it's true, you know, PayPal was a very important company. There's the PayPal Mafia, the, the famous photo. By the way, I was actually at Hereticon uh, event, uh, the, the one that you helped put on, uh, Peter, uh, and Founders Fund put on in Miami, and there was uh, a startup there, and they want, and I... They it, like actually wanted to pose like that PayPal mafia photo. That's how much it was in the in the sort of their mind as like what you do as as an up and coming startup. What you know, one thing is like all of you have gone on to. I mean, PayPal itself was a mega success, but then in addition to that, you all left very hungry and you had huge success in your own entrepreneurial or venture capital careers or both. In the case of many of you, so I'm curious what you know what was it about PayPal? I mean, obviously, the, like everyone says, the hiring was very good. And you, you obviously had an enormously skilled set of people. A lot of people that aren't, aren't even here, Reed Hoffman, et cetera, are, are also, you know, big names. But what, what was it that made you leave that and say, okay, I want to do it again, but like bigger? What, what, why was PayPal so, so influential in that regard? I'm not going to name names, but there's other companies that you could name that didn't create, you know, this sort of very uh, feverishly fertile generation. Well, I'll, I'll start with a somewhat lame answer. I think all these why questions are very overdetermined, so there are many different answers to it. But one, one um, sort of straightforward answer is that PayPal was, it was hard. It was at the end of the day successful. It wasn't massively, it, was, it wasn't insanely successful. And, um, and then um, most of the companies, you know, if a company completely fails, you learn the lesson that it's impossible. And, uh, and you try something very unambitious and you never do anything great afterwards. And if you're in a company where things are too easy, like perhaps at a Google or Facebook, um, you learn that it's it's too easy, and um, that's also a uh, toxic lesson for uh, for starting a company. And so somehow, PayPal was. It's always better to be in a company that's just a rocket ship where everything is so easy, um, but um, it's not pedagogically better. And so PayPal was, uh, you know, less successful. Um, than let's say Facebook or Google, but it was uh, it was definitely a much better learning experience for how to how to start new companies. How about you, David? What's your theory on on the PayPal mafia or like the PayPal generation of, of founders and entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what what Peter said. I I tend to boil it down to three things: um, the the people themselves, the timing, and then the playbooks that we learned. So the people. I think it's important to note that the people were generally all recruited through friendship networks. Peter recruited his friends from Stanford, of which I was one. Max recruited his friends from U of I and so on down the line, like Luke, um, and so on down the line. And so the people were all kind of cut from the same cloth. They were all founder personalities. I think that accounts for a lot of the um, debates and friction inside the building. I think it's one of the ways that like PayPal was very different than most startups is that most startups have one or two or a few founder personalities, PayPal had like a dozen. And you see that in their subsequent success going off to create all these 
these companies, but it was very frictional at the time. Um, I mean, it was a productive friction, but it was very different. So I think the people themselves, and then like Peter said, the timing, you know, where uh, everyone else was going through the dot-com crash, we had a successful outcome, but it wasn't too successful. And then finally, you know, we learned all these playbooks, all these modern techniques, the viral hacking, um, the importance of distribution. And so when everyone went off to do their next set of companies, they had, you know, they, they had all these best practices that they could implement. Interesting. So it seems like the obstacle was the way. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to, I think I, I completely agree with both David and Peter. Um, probably to kind of wrinkles, maybe refine um, one really obvious one, but PayPal returned an exceptional amount of IRR for a lot of its early investors. And so the founder personality crew that just, and, and by the way, the, the reason I started my next company and the one after and the one after that was for no other reason that I just love starting companies. Like, you know, Alpha and Omega of what I do is I got, you know, I, I literally, I think Luke is the original vampire who bit me and passed the, uh, the startup bug onto me, but it turned out, uh, it, it turned out to, to have sort of stuck with me forever. And uh, so I, I just, I'll just keep starting companies, you know, so long as I'm not running one that I started, I'll, I'll start another one. But the ability to walk into any venture capital room and say, hey, I'm one of the uh, PayPal founding crew, it still has an enormous amount of cash cachet, but at the time was kind of the peak of uh, fundraising ability. So a lot of us got a sort of free entry into the uh, Sand Hill Road lottery. Uh, the second thing, just to maybe put a slightly finer point on David's notion. So we had all these founder personalities the, the the reason it was so powerful is because, or the, the reason it worked so well is with many of us, and you know, perhaps the vast majority of people at the company, the first 100 anyway, had someone at the company that was their confidant slash defender slash advocate slash close friend from college. And so the debate in pursuit of truth was generally speaking, completely unapologetic and much, much, much farther than typical teams that just met would, would, would go like we could call each other's ideas completely idiotic and still go out to dinner because we'd done that for four years or more in college just in a sort of course of doing homework or, or just hanging out and so this ability to seek the truth by any means necessary without any fear of someone quitting on the spot or you know feeling offended for too long is a really really good sort of a educational experience for what do you do to seek the truth, which is what you have to do when you build products, when you try to get the you know, elusive product market, et cetera. So I, I think that safety net of emotional safety was a lot more powerful than I certainly recognized at the time. Well, hence Peter's famous line to me that, you know, when he hired me, I need people I can scream at. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the, the point of that was what Max was saying is that, you know, I need people here who aren't going to be offended when we, you know, are, are truth seeking. I don't know, Peter. What's your? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, uh, I, to I totally agree, and it, it certainly was. The probably our companies were where things just sort of work, and and um, and uh, people can be all googly or or, or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was it was certainly not uh, it was not the case for our business. There were, you know, it it all obviously it also yeah it also uh, created all these um, you know. Uh, there were there were ways in which people were run ragged. You know, it was it was a little bit too much of a sprint. You know, uh, and it needed to be both a sprint and a marathon. So there were all these all these challenges that came with it. But uh, if, if it had been yeah, if it had been any less confrontational, I think uh, I think we would have never never gotten to never gotten to square one. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and, was, and was, people people yeah, forget people forget how short this PayPal mafia period actually was. I mean, the whole thing. From basically founding to the you know IPO and the sale of the company to eBay, which is sort of the PayPal mafia period, it was under four years. And so, as legendary as this time period was, um, it didn't last very long. And um, and I think so. To Peter's point, I mean, it really was a crucible where we had to figure out these enormously difficult, complicated problems in an extremely short amount of time. And you know, with the pressure cooker of the dot com crash having just happened. So we knew that there wouldn't be a lot more funding available. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and I, I, I do think the fact that we could get to the truth, you know, by yelling at each other, if necessary, um, was, was an important part of the formula. 
I think there was also a sense to which we were not done at that. It came so quickly, though, so suddenly um, that we were in the middle of all of these battles and we had so much further to go to make this a global payment service. And, and still not, you know, it's now it's now like probably, you know, there. It's, I think it could have gone further if we, we'd been uh, pushing on it. But um, that, that's the way in which um, perhaps the company, someone asked, I have a friend, Jason Crawford from Progress Studies, did PayPal have a, uh, how does it square with the definite optimism thing? Well, it wasn't as definite of, of a company. What it, We discovered the mission along the way, and then um, we sort of dropped it. And those of us who were excited, maybe not even by that particular mission, but, but by the uh, way that we were working together toward that, really wanted to continue that because it couldn't just be stopped. Okay. I, I've got one more question. I know we're running, running a little time. We're actually a little over time. I know it's the middle of the day, but if I can manage to squeeze in one more question, it would not be a tech conversation without a little bit of sort of wild-eyed forward-looking statements. And so I know separately from the the classic PayPal period, we've got this whole crypto thing going on. And I know people like Peter, for example, have, have written and spoken a lot about it. Um, you were involved very early on in, in, the, in the sort of, you know, digitalization of payments. I'm curious, without turning it into a massive thing, what, what do you think of, you know, payments now and, and crypto and I, I don't know. I, we, having created so much of like digital payments, wh what do you think when when you see crypto? Man, I, I was I was well. I'll just say I was uh, the biggest mistake I made in the last decade was um, getting too late and too little in Bitcoin. You know, we invested in 2014 at Founders Fund um, and did reasonably well, but uh, it was you know, I mean, I, I I was it was on my radar in 2010, 2011, and it was just yeah, we had we had seen all these crazy cryptocurrency people. At the time of PayPal, it was one of the things that actually I was super interested in. It motivated me, but uh, none of the models quite worked. And so when you had um, the second coming of the, the crazy crypto currency people from Anguilla or whatever in, in, in with, with Bitcoin, um, um, I, I was somehow programmed uh, not to see it as, mu as much as I should have. Yeah, I think I think we um, I agree, Peter. You know, I I, I met them uh, uh, the, some of the early Bitcoin crew very early as well, 2010. And, and you'd been funding the seasteading group. They had this conference out in the middle of the I remember uh, the water. Yeah, and uh, I tried to convince them not to do it. And that that was unfortunately our attitude early on is that we had um, been burned by the early experimenters. Uh, but one thing I I think I want to give us a little bit of, of forgiveness at, at Founders Fund. Um, I think we work similarly here at Gigafund too, that we like to meet the founder and understand what motivates them. And Satoshi Nakamoto is totally anonymous, totally enigmatic. And we so we never got to meet the founder. You know, we, we met Vitalik, I think, through Teal Foundation. We got to su support him. But um, through, but uh, how do you make a decision on something when you don't even know if the person exists? I, I can take some of the responsibility. I've been a long-term naysayer of all this crypto shenanigans so uh i'm sure I, I was not a positive influence on any of this thinking but uh it's uh it's fascinating how far it had gotten i think peters have touched on the on some some of the suspicion that we brought um to, to bear uh, right before peter and i met at stanford i was on stanford campus uh, actually i don't remember if it was a little bit earlier a little bit after but I went to the DigiCash bankruptcy party. And uh, as the Bitcoin and then other coin sort of space started getting really spun up, I couldn't help but notice that all the people that I've met at that DigiCash bankruptcy party and the Anguilla sort of semi-insane crypto uh, laundering uh, conference rolled back to it with uh, with new, new, uh, new rebirth of digital currencies. And so my antennas were uh, quite up with you know, the next round of things to, to go bankrupt with. But Max, what you want to celebrate about this is that, that those people were working with the banks and that actually <laughs> Bitcoin and it, in its genesis was to be something totally ex, the outside the financial and totally outside the government regulatory purview. It's actually closer to the original inspiration when we were like reading, um, what is it, Sovereign Individual um, and uh, and, and thinking about how could you create something that was totally independent, and 
you know, those guys, that's not what they were doing. So we were right to beat Naysaying to, to, to the Digital Cash crowd. And I remember uh, David Chung walking around Palo Alto, stroking his giant beard, looking very angry. And I sort of thought that's like the personification of digital currency people. Like he, he's obviously brilliant and yet so unhappy with uh, sort of where, where, uh, where this world ended up despite his genius. And so I, in some ways I, I, I swore off working on uh, blind signatures and anonymous, anonymous digital currencies uh, right there. And then uh, I'll, I'll give you one completely unrelated random thing since we touched on CAPTCHA. The what last remaining Easter egg that I left in the code base for PayPal can be found inside the PayPal CAPTCHA implementation. So if, uh, this, this, this would not be a truly techie podcast if uh, someone didn't go off in a wild goose chase to, uh, to look for an interesting Easter egg. It's pretty interesting. Oh my God, Max. So wait, how do you, how do you bake an Easter egg into a CAPTCHA? There, there's like one response that passes. I mean, how does You'll that work? You'll have to find out. <laughs> that, that, that's all I'm going to say. I, and I, first, you have to go find it. They, have, they actually hit it. Sorry, and I have to I have to draft in your wake a bit and just mention that there's an Easter egg buried within the book. And the only person to have cracked it thus far is Max Lepch. Oh, wow. I, I'm going to have to read it a third time. Here, I, give, <laughs> I give Peter 24 hours to track it down. It's that competitive. Oh, boy. Uh <laughs> Give, 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 us, give us a hint. Give us a hint. Uh, it's Jimmy's Easter egg to give away. I mean, Max, I think you probably, because you solved it, I think you're probably in a better position to give the hint away without giving it all away. Um, there's an obvious variance in a certain element of the book design that should be interpreted as a code. Okay, I will. I will try to figure this out. <laughs> I knew we... it. Actually, I'm, I'm curious. What's what's next for the book, Jimmy? And should, should we make the announcement about the uh, the TV show? I guess uh, Antonio, we can break some news on your on your show. Do it. Which is um, a couple of the the PayPal mafia have production companies. So I have one, and then Jack Selby, who is our VP of corporate development, has one. And so Jack and I partnered to uh, acquire the rights to Jimmy's book to produce as a TV show. So we're working with a major Hollywood showrunner named Mark Goffman, and he's working on the project. And so we hope that this will turn into a TV show a la, you know, The Last Dance or, uh, you know, with Michael Jordan or uh, The Defiant One, something like that. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where this goes. Oh, God. So now I've got the perfect ending question, by the way, since you mentioned that, David. I have to ask. What, what is the obvious question whenever a book is in talks to be made into a film, which is what, David? Who plays you in the movie? So does, does everyone <laughs> mind just volunteering who they think will play that or would ideally play them in, in the film? Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about that one. Why don't, why don't you go to someone else for a sec? Peter? Man, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about any of that stuff. So I'm going to pass. I think I'm too uncool too. We're too out. Of <laughs> I, I have no idea who could play me, but if there's a movie and the roles are for grabs, I want to play Jens Voigt, who is uh, best, uh, my favorite living professional cyclist. That, that's my one aspiration to be in a live action cinema. Well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's very telling. Oh, sorry, Peter, do you want to say something? Okay. I, th I think it's very telling that nobody is cool enough to actually even pick an actor. I have to say, as someone who published the book and, uh, you know, they also asked me the same question and I have to say, I, I didn't, I didn't come up with an answer either. By the way, I was also very heartwarmed that um, everyone seemed to regret not jumping into crypto earlier. I, I also had <laughs> that same regret. So I, I feel somewhat pleased that people as smart as, as you all also um, have their regret. Well, you know, I think we're way over time. I think we had a fascinating conversation. Um, unless there's something else somebody wants to add or David, some other piece of news you want to suddenly announce on the show. Um, I think we might, I think we might end it. Jimmy, any, any closing words or David? You know, the only thing I would say is that, uh, this people, I, I feel the loneliness that Max describes that he had after the PayPal acquisition. I feel it now having spent five and a half years, basically waking up every morning and thinking about the contours of this story and figuring out what was in the omelet at the beaming at Bucks and 
trying to figure out how to make Anguilla a section in the book. And so, but I, but I do hope that with this conversation, people got a window into the, the fun of this period and of just how much energy there was in this room in such a short time and how many people came together. This was the, 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 the cool thing about this is you gave me a little bit of what I had the last few years. And I, I think I'll miss it the moment this episode's over. Well, that's why you go into a second book, Jimmy. I also had like a, there's like, there's like a weird writerly postpartum depression that you have after the book comes out. That's like, wow, that's it. <laughs> um, and Peter, I hope, I hope you find the Easter egg. And um, I hope that it somehow, um, if you do, that you announce it somehow or somehow share it with us. Um, I'll, I'll also try to try to find it. It's hard, it's hard to imagine what an Easter egg would look like in a book. Um, but in any case, um, thanks everyone for joining. I know you and your staffs had uh, did a lot of work to to make it happen. Uh, it was basically like the the uh, like the impossible to solve calendar Tetris problem <laughs> of trying to find one common time. But I'm glad we finally did. Thanks, David. Thanks, Max, uh, Luke, Peter, and obviously thanks, Jimmy, uh, for writing the book. The book is the founders uh, buyable where all fine books are sold. I heartily recommend it. I think it's a it's an amazing look into how startups really work. And for me, it was like a total a total almost nostalgia trip for what, you know, Silicon Valley can be or should be. So thanks everyone. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Um, and, uh, you know, join us next week for the next uh, drop of uh, pull requests. Good night.